This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland and this is a big one for me because we're talking to Max Allen Collins. Now, I have such a huge admiration for Max Allen Collins. You know, The Road to Perdition, we think about that movie. Hopefully you've seen The Road to Perdition uh, with Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Jude Law, Daniel Craig. Um, That's based on a Max Allen Collins graphic novel written for... Uh, Vertigo, the, uh, Vertigo under DC Comics. I think that's where I, f- I first discovered Max Allen Collins, I believe, in the 80s through DC Comics because he was writing really interesting, smart, kind of hard-boiled characters at DC. Then 1990 arrives, Dick Tracy hits the Warren Beatty film Dick Tracy. And I read the novelization for Dick Tracy written by Max Allen Collins, sidebar. The man has written dozens of movie media tie-in novels we're going to talk about that. How do you adapt a film for a novel? He's one of the kings of media tie-in novelizations. But he wrote the novelization for Dick Tracy. I was Dick Tracy mad. I was writing Dick Tracy fan fiction. Max Allen Collins also wrote some other Dick Tracy novels that were kind of ancillary, being pushed in that Dick Tracy zeitgeist. Uh, and had been writing the Dick Tracy comic strip for years. Took over after Chester Gould uh, stopped writing that. Max Allen Collins steps up and begins writing Dick Tracy. All throughout my life, Max Allen Collins is there. Whenever I discover something, he's there. He's been writing something or creating something or making a movie about something because he's also a filmmaker. We're going to hear about that. Leonard Malton calling Max Allen Collins a filmmaker and the awareness of the, oh yeah, I make movies now too. Uh, He is the executor of the Mickey Spillane catalog. He's finished multiple Mickey Spillane Uh, books, novels in multiple genres, not just Mike Hammer stuff, also uh, Western stuff with the Caleb York novels. This brought a Mickey Mickey Spillane audio productions. We got a new Mickey Spillane uh, production called Encore for Murder that we're going to hear about here where Gary Sandy fills those very big shoes. Gary Sandy from WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, This is the longest interview I've ever posted to date for Serial at Midnight. It's also the one that's the most packed. I think you're going to have an absolute blast with this. To find out Max Allen Collins would not only come and have a conversation with me, but that he's a regular viewer and he watches Serial at Midnight, he already knew who I was. It was just crazy. This was just such a thrill, such an honor. I'm babbling because I'm so excited. Without further ado, Max Allen Collins. By the way, did you guys get slammed last night with a storm? We got very slammed. It, it, it was... Uh... Not that bad when we woke up this morning. It was like, oh, they were exaggerating this. Then it started. And we're kind of like burrowed in because we kind of realized we kind of had a good time during COVID (laughs) where where we burrowed in and we ate at home and we didn't have to see anybody and we just watched a lot of stuff. And Mm -hmm. so we just felt like, okay, we've got about three or four days where we don't have to go anywhere. And we don't have to do anything and we don't have to see anybody and we don't have to we got all the food bought and we're ready to go so (laughs) but you know i think COVID forever changed everything because it told us all these things you were doing you don't have to do you're fine at home i don't think theaters are ever going to recover all the way i don't think they are either and the the, our big uh, the the one thing we did was there was a for seniors at seven o'clock in the morning 
you could go to the local big grocery store and there'd be nobody there but seniors for about an hour and they'd be playing the they wouldn't be playing country western they'd be playing bobby rydell and yeah and all that kind of stuff and we just had the that was our big deal once a week we would go to the store and for an hour we'd hear you know really old really old rock and roll rock and roll cool. from when we were in junior high Oh, do you follow Bear Family Records? Because they put out. I do. To, I do to some degree. In fact, my my guy, as you may have picked up from reading my books, is Bobby Darren. I'm I'm a huge. I mean, I since I was like eleven or twelve years old. There's a cool guy singing about it about a guy who's a serial killer. I love this. You know, that was me, right. me as a kid. If you look in in the background here, you can see uh, my that's laser discs. And that was kind of the 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 middle the the middle pan, the middle shelf so, is yeah, a laser disc from that era where they were putting out all the live concerts and all of the golden oldie stuff and that whole thing is what one of the reasons I keep my laser disc player alive is because that's where the music they they it really was no one talks about it a golden age of uh, music on uh, disc on on video disc elaborate You've, i've never heard anybody talk about this please elaborate on oh, that. well it'd be like it'll be a three dog night concert it'll be you know it'll be uh you know the golden hits of the 50s and it will be clips from different shows and it will be and, and it's anybody that was big all the new wave, new wave stuff lots of elvis costello lots of blondie all of that stuff uh and, and it kept going into the early early 90s so from about whenever Laserdisc started, which was I think late '70s, uh, that that's a real interesting period of music. You know, you you know, you will see things like uh, I mean, it's Talking Heads, and it's mm. it's all kinds of wonderful stuff. You know, Iron Butterfly. Okay, I mean, there's there's no Iron Butterfly DVD that I know of. There's certainly yeah. not a Blu-ray, and uh, a lot of Beatles. Uh, there was the I forget what it was called, but it was the thing that was before anthology that that was the thing that was you had to have because that was the the Beatles thing they had the most. Was it the complete Beatles? Yes. C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. Yeah. I don't think that ever got on to uh, to DVD. It, it stopped at VHS. Well, no, it didn't. It stopped at Laserdisc. There, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's and, good, too. That's a really good uh, documentary. Yeah, and you know it's it's still a pretty good format. Now, if you can't see it because I've got my blue Christmas poster in front of it, but there's nice. a there's a tube TV behind there because that's the way to watch Laserdisc. It wants you know it, it wants the the tube TV, it wants that vacuum tube, and it looks good. And so I have to ask, as I I hear what you're saying, I agree with what you're saying, as a physical media fan which we mm -hmm. see it all behind you what do you think about this trend right now of the the why no 4k people it's these younger people that are just entering and they expect the absolute best quality for everything well and, and this is something i've wrestled with because i like the best quality of everything where's my chinatown 4k yeah i mean you know the movies i want now we've got vertigo on 4k road to perdition where's the road 4k Perdition for isn't on 4k yet which i i don't understand it was the best picture uh cinematography uh conrad hall how do you beat conrad hall uh so uh but i do find i have a i guess it must be a 
about a 60 inch screen i've got one of those that kind of has a curve to it you know yeah. it's and yeah. uh and it is a it, it it does take 4k but the difference between 4k and uh, blu-ray on a on sort of a normal what i think of as a normal uh flat screen it's it's not radical i mean i i will upgrade if i really love the movie but now we're back to what we were talking about off camera which is that i gear my because of my age it partly and because funds are not unlimited for any of us i want to i will upgrade something i love if i love it or really, really like it. I mean, I would love a 4K of How to Succeed in Business without really trying, for example. One of my favorite movies, the Robert Morris performance in How to Succeed in Business is one of the great Broadway performances captured by accurately by a movie. And, you know, so something like that. I mentioned Chinatown. I'd also like the two Jakes with 4K. So it isn't always yeah. something really, really famous. It's just, and it, it you know, I think collectors have to give in to their what they personally like. For example, I I have bought my last Jesse Franco movie. I'm not going to get conned into buying a Jesse Franco <laughs> movie again. And I did buy The Girl from Rio because it was <laughs> on 4K. Yeah. Because because but that's because I like Fu Manchu and. Well, that's uh, my favorite one too. Is my favorite Franco film is The Girl from Rio, and it's got that cool like uh bossa nova kind of thing going on yeah, it's got everything but a story I, yep <laughs> yep and i had a lot i had a lot of trouble for years with uh with with the italian stuff and i think not not the westerns the westerns i i saw many of those in the theater i and if it had lee van cleef in it i was going to be there there's oh, yeah. no question i was going to be there but the giallo uh and, and I saw this, I saw somebody smart define this the wrong way the other day. Maybe it was you. I don't think it was, though. The reason why why they're called the yellow film, which is yellow, is that the paperback line that published all the American authors in translation had yellow yellow covers. Mm. I have a couple of those. A couple of my books were published over there in the, in, in the 70s. So it isn't that the yellow was somehow some other way associated with, you know, with dark material. It was literally like like the Black Mask magazine, Black Mask, you know, but it was mm -hmm. literally they had a yellow kind of frame to a little pulp illustration. And that's why, why they made the movies out of those books. And that's why it's called that. And I had I had some trouble getting into that. I had some trouble getting into Argento and some of these people, because they really are more about the way they look and the moods that they create than any kind of logical story. And I'm just linear enough as a writer myself that I had to kind of get past that. But I came to it. It did not come to me. Yeah. I I, I had to get past a couple of, I guess, prejudices because we. To get into some of the foreign material and some of the kind of art house material, you have to put some of your some some of your pulp rules behind. Some of them are good. Some of them I'll probably never watch again because they are 
form over it's just yeah. it, you know it's just like form over what content. can we do with what we've got but i i have to tell you that when i started making uh there was a period and we were kind of jumping around here which is fine but you know i did the dick tracy comic strip from 77 to 93 and basically that was a ticket for me to be able to do my novels because i would only only take me a day or two a week to do the dick tracy comic strip and so i had a nice paycheck for that so i could kind of take my time and that's when i i developed the nathan heller novels and i did a lot of work during that period when that was over they basically fired me uh i mean i'm pretty open yeah. about that but very common thing in publishing is a new editor comes in and gets rid of the other guy's you know pet and i was the pet of the other guy who he was hired to replace so you know that's the way it goes yeah. but i had a 15-year run and i was the first guy in after chester gould who created dick tracy so that was a dream gig for a kid i mean it was in my 20 early 20s when i got it and you know, then in in 93 i got this notion to try to do some independent filmmaking because i loved movies i liked movies as much as i like books and that's when i did mommy which is basically was patty mccormick reviving the bad seed as a right essentially here. yeah there it is right here there it is there she is she's great human being great actress and we did two of those and then I got the bug, you know, you get the bug for things. It's yeah. like rock and roll. I've played rock and roll since, you ready for this? 1965, I've played rock and roll and I still am. I have three gigs this summer. That's amazing. So uh, I love it. I mean, why should I not do the things that I love to do? So, but what I what happened was I got involved in the independent film and we did we did a couple that were really low budget and they were really, and I, when I say low budget, I mean $10,000. I mean, micro budget. Is that fair to micro say? Micro budget. Yeah. But I had a producer steal a bunch of money from us. We did well with the two mommies. And I had, and we, and the money was stolen from us, and I wanted to keep going. So we figured out, I would figure out a way to do something. We shot um, a real time Siege at Lucas Street Market on security cameras, basically. And we did uh, Elliot Ness and Untouchable Life. We staged it as a play, and and I, I at I that time that I was too. yes I was kind of mm -hmm. I was kind of hot because of the fact that Perdition Road to Perdition had been out. So I went yeah. to this theater in Des Moines. Were you not hot before that though, with all of your fiction? Mm. Well, you know, I I I, I mean I've had things optioned, and but Road to Perdition was a big deal. I mean yeah. that was. That was a big deal. And so uh, I went We'll circle back around to some of this because I got a lot that I want to say, but I okay. want to get I want to let you get your point out. Well, the, the, the point is that I, I went was able to make that movie for ten thousand dollars because we got a grant from Humanities Iowa. And and I went to this theater in Des Moines that was the big repertory theater there and said, you know, you know, I'm the Road to Perdition guy. You want to do my new play? Oh, we love you in your play. Okay, but I need the theater for for you know between the weekend performances. Yeah. So we shot it in like four days, and it's a one man show. The late Michael Cornelison, who was a wonderful actor, and, and it's you know so there's a lot of scrambling just to find a way to do it. I did two documentaries, 
one with the University of Iowa that was about VT Hamlin, the guy who who drew the Alley Oop comic strip, you know, the caveman. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I did the Mickey Splain autobar, uh, you know, documentary that I think you've seen. Jimmy, this you've, documentary I, is this that the one documentary? You know, I mean, so so, and then at a certain point, one of the things was my friend Michael Cornelison, who had been an actor in all of my movies uh, and had done the voiceover. Uh, he passed away, and it it took the wind out of my sails. And also I was getting older, you know, so, well then, uh, as I think, you know, (laughs) we can go into this separately, but we did my, we did the Mike Hammer, uh, encore for murder as a play. And I, and I basically shot that and then it kind of got the juices flowing again. So I, I, as you know, I just did a, a movie this year at a ripe old age, which we won't talk about. You keep bringing uh, it up though. I know I'm a little obsessed with it. It's uh, you know, it, it does define what you can do. But does I li- I like to, and this one we had all you know we did it on fourteen grand, uh, but... which is unbelievable. I mean that is unbelievable. When you told me that, I was like, wow. Because here's the thing, you know, I talk about I, people send me their micro budget movies. Most micro budget movies don't have. <laughs> a story people want to make a movie and they don't have the budget to make a movie and so they just kind of film whatever they can it is a true adaptation of your we're talking about you want to talk about the name of it i don't did you say the 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 movie is called blue christmas it was um that's kind of an interesting story i wouldn't mind telling you go for Uh, it yeah i you know on in in 1992 toward the end of the year I received a letter telling me I was no, my services were no longer needed on Dick Tracy, the comic strip. After 15 years in the movie with Warren Beatty and all of that stuff. And I called my agent and said, well, I, you know, I, you need to know the bottom dropped out of my, you know, this thing that has allowed me to do all kinds of fun things. And he said, well, I, I this is a terrible thing for me to have to tell you but uh your nathan heller contract was canceled today so i had my the two big things i had nathan heller was my is my recurrent one of the two recurring characters i write about a lot and then so basically i lost everything yeah and it was like right before thanksgiving and so uh i had about a i had about a month where i was as close to writer's block as I ever get, and I don't get writer's block. So I've always liked the Alistair Sim Scrooge, and I've always loved Christmas Carol. And on Christmas Eve, 1992, an idea popped in my mind, which was, the two two of my favorite things the maltese falcon and and a christmas carol i could see how they they could be merged mm-hmm. you have the partner who has died who's been murdered and the private eye re, you know sam spade re, reluctantly solves his murder he didn't like the guy but you gotta your partner's dead in the private eye business you gotta yeah. do, do it you gotta solve the murder well i just made that marley the the marley ghost a year ago a year ago i was killed and now i'm now i'm walking through limbo chained up because 
you, my private detective partner in the business, did not bother to solve my murder. And so I thought, that's a really good idea. And so I sat down and in one, and you'll appreciate this because you're a writer, I wrote a 50-page novella that night. I wrote almost all, almost all night I wrote on it. And, uh, and then I, I sold it a few times uh, and it's been, it's been collected here and there, but I, I felt, it felt very special to me. Mm -hmm. it, it was what brought me back into, to be able to tap into, to my creativity after getting, getting hit really hard with those two things right before Christmas. And so, um, we when we did the mommy when we did mommy mommy was a, a pretty successful i know not all horror fans like it because it's not it, it it's really a psychological thriller but i live in a little town if i had thrown blood on the walls around here i wouldn't have got my investors right i had to i i you have to do what you have to do to, to get That's something right. made and uh so so mommy mommy sold to lifetime and was a primetime movie of the week. Mommy was picked up by the Blockbuster chain, which was a big deal at that point yeah. to be in every Blockbuster. And so we decided, and I had written a movie version of A Wreath for Marley. And that was what we were gonna do. We had done location scouting, we'd done everything on it. And, and I said, we better make Mommy too. We just better, I mean, we have to. And I had an idea for it, so. Because I, I had this idea that we would make her the hero of the second movie. She was the villain of the first one, so I'd make mm -hmm. her the, the hero of the second movie. I thought that was fun. I didn't know yeah. if anybody had ever done that. So um, Blue Christmas, Wreath for Marley, got put on, on, on a shelf. And then I always kind of would come back to it, but I couldn't ever figure out a way to make it that wouldn't cost me at least half a million dollars. And then when when we did this uh my camera play last year and i started thinking more in play terms i thought of a way to do it as a play and then it, and then as i started working on that i thought but it could also rather and then shoot it shoot it as a play and then i thought but i'd really rather make a movie so then the play version which i'd rethought so it could all be done on one set Let's just shoot it as a movie instead, mm -hmm. which we did, and we did it in six six days, and then we had um, we we had I think two or three evenings of uh, you know second unit where we shot some exteriors and things, but mostly I wanted it all to be almost like you're locked in the private eye's mind, mm -hmm. and so every vision comes, and we just played that we just played the set. I think we did a good job, and you did uh, do a good job. You well, did. It's, it's a lot of bang for the buck. Now, when I it say is. fourteen thousand dollars, I didn't get paid as a director. I didn't get paid as a writer. My producer didn't get paid. My cinematographer didn't get paid. The actors were all pretty much local people. Yeah. So if we had paid everybody, you know, it would have been a, a two hundred fifty thousand dollar movie, which is still chump change. But I don't have two hundred fifty dollars, two hundred fifty thousand dollars laying around. But I, and you, you, you mentioned something really key. All these people, and I don't mean to disparage them, who say, "Well, I'm a filmmaker. 
I'm a filmmaker. Well, have you made any films? You know, well, that opportunity hasn't presented itself to me yet. Well, here's how opportunity presents itself to, to you as a filmmaker. You grab it. You you can't get in the door, you go through the window. And and you have you have to be you have to will these movies into existence. And, and it's the only way you can do it. And now I've done like as a side as a side gig, I've done six feature movies. It's not too bad. And two documentaries and three shorts. So I I, I remember the first time that Leonard Malton said to me, well, you're a filmmaker. And I said, Does, I'm a filmmaker? He said, yeah, you're, you're a filmmaker. It doesn't yeah. mean you're good, bad, indifferent. But the only way you can call yourself a filmmaker is if you've made a film. I mean, that's kind of how the English language works. Although it's working in weird ways these days, but yeah well do you know how many youtubers call themselves filmmakers on their tax returns and like it's not really you're not really filmmaking you're doing something else but uh make yeah, a movie that's... on you know make a movie on youtube but make a movie yeah. i mean come on uh, when when we made when we made mommy we had to make the hard hard decision to not shoot it on on film and to shoot it on on, on beta cam Mm -hmm. Because by shooting it on Betacam, we were able to get Patty McCormick, Jason Miller, we got from The Exorcist. We got Majel Barrett from Star Trek. We got Brink Stevens, the great scream queen. We got Mickey Spillane, my friend, the mystery Who writer. We're going to talk more about in the. Yeah. So, so, so by shooting on Betacam, we were able to get these you know get some names in which you needed on the video box in those days right you had to have video box names and and so uh i look at these people and i'm thinking you've got a phone you can, you've got hd in your phone make a movie yeah <laughs> i mean uh the tools and you can like one of the things that we're doing right now with blue christmas is we're talking about talking to to a major theater chain in in Iowa about putting us in next Christmas. Wow. We couldn't do that with we couldn't do that with Mommy because it was the wrong format. But now everybody's HD, everybody's 4K. Yeah. And so there's a whole new world that's starting to open up and I'm glad I'm here for at least the, a little bit of it because it's really you know the idea that i can could act i'm going to get to see blue christmas in an actual theater uh very is, is that when people will get to see this because i know right now it's not i mean i've seen it thank you by the way thank you for letting me see it but how <laughs> the first how people... person to see it you're the first civilian to see it <laughs> and i loved it and and people will find out i i, I can i say i gave a pull quote for it or i gave a, you a, did give a, a pull quote for it. i gave a blurb uh, yeah it's um, very nice. When can people expect? We we just talked about the this film. When can people expect to see it? Christmas time, twenty twenty four. Well, yeah, I think probably that's that's going to be the case. I'm I'm actually talking to uh, our friend Bill Blair, uh, Bob Blair, Bob Blair from yeah. BCI, uh, uh, has said he wants to do it. Did and you ever think about shooting it in black and white? I did. In fact, the the, the original screenplay was going to start in black and white and bleed into to color mm -hmm. uh but we just uh it just didn't 
didn't play the way I wanted it to. But I, I, I mean, that's funny because I know they're doing, they're, they've got what the Godzilla movie is being screened in, in black and white. And of course they did that with, with uh, the most recent uh, Mad Max movie. Mad Max. They also did it with uh, Logan, the Wolverine movie. Uh, there's a black and white version of that on the disc release, I think. I was just curious if that was something you'd consider. No, it's, it, but, you know, I and I had I had to actually talk to my cinematographer about this quite a bit because um, I kept, he kept saying, well, it's not very noir. And I'm like, this is a Christmas what? movie. This is a Christmas movie first. It's noir second. Uh, but we, we did a black and white uh, noir five minute film and did all of the angles and did every, i mean did did everything that is i hate the word trope but the tropes the cliches yeah. or whatever and i do think if you go if you lean too heavily into that it's distracting and it becomes you know it becomes a self-parody well i want to ask you what did you think about sin city the film version of sin city when it first came out because we hadn't seen anything like it before well, yeah, and it's funny because I, I think that they kind of had worn their welcome out by the second one, but it was a unique, I, I liked the idea that they they took Frank's work and 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 it was a comic book on, on screen. Yeah. My biggest complaint about Sin City generally, and, and Frank Miller's a, a, a friend of mine, not a close friend, but we know each other. Um, he did the cover of the first Mike Danger comic book for us. Uh, so he's a good he's a good guy, uh, but Sin City is almost entirely derived from Mickey Spillane, and even at and and at the end when he thanked all these people and all his and, and all his uh, influences, he left Mickey off. And I thought, come on, Frank, Mickey, Mickey's there's there's no Sin City without Mickey Spillane. And the sad thing is, as you know, you can say Mickey Spillane to a generation or two and they don't know what you're talking about. Right. I was going to say, if it was a modern filmmaker who didn't think Mickey Spillane, you could say, well, they don't know that all of this saturation of these elements in our culture comes from Mickey Spillane. But Frank well, Miller, you, absolutely. Quentin knows. Tarantino knows. You can yeah, bet Quentin Tarantino knows. Uh, and, and, and he has said so. Um, I believe he has a Kiss Me Deadly poster in his uh, in his office uh and and if you think about kiss me deadly it, it it does not really have the the earmarks of classic noir in terms of the way things are lit yeah uh whereas i the jury which i have you seen the i the jury yes uh, absolutely uh, i have yeah i, I well i was very That's beautiful yeah yeah uh, very very that was a dream come true for me that that came came to be i mean this is a dream that this 3d 4k classic i mean a classic flicks what a, what mm -hmm. a what an incredible company they're doing some of the best and most important restoration work of anybody right now yeah you absolutely know? these noir films they just put out a loretta young movie on uh on blu-ray and you know they're restoring all 66 of the hop along cassidy films which is a huge wow. undertaking so yeah, I love I, those guys. Yeah, uh, you David. know, um, Mickey personally did not like any of those movies. And that's why he made The Girl Hunters, because he's going to show them how it was, was done. And the funny thing is that as the years went by, well, another short anecdote. Okay. I, I, we, 
there was a Mickey Spillane uh, festival basically at the British Film Institute in London. And that's where, uh, that's one of the places we showed my documentary, Mike Hammer's Mickey Spillane. And it was, yes, and it was shown there at the British Film Institute. So they also had I the Jury in 3D. They had, they had the Girl Hunters, they had uh, Kiss Me Deadly, obviously. And they had the pilot, the the Brian Keith pilot, which I provided for the for this uh, release of of I the Jury. You had Brian that. Keith. That's from your. You had that. That was mine. Yeah, that was. And, and I did the commentary on on yeah. on that as well. So so it was a it was a big event, and we had an interview with me and Mickey, and a, a guy whose name I can't remember, but a incredibly erudite guy from the British Film Institute. And for once in my life, you will not believe this, but I, I shut up. I didn't say anything. <laughs> and I just sat there because he had Mickey Spillane he's talking to. Let's let him talk to Mickey Spillane. But this gentleman knew me and knew knew that I knew a lot about Mickey. And he turned to me and he said, now, Max, I understand you and, and Mickey have one thing that you really disagree on. And, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. I said, y yes, I, I believe Mickey hates the movie Kiss Me Deadly, and I think it's a masterpiece. And, and then I went on with my theory that the great, write the great writers of noir fiction who have lasted, who have endured, are the ones who had great movies done from their books. So, so Chandler benefits from Murder, My Sweet and The Big Sleep being such terrific movies. Um, James M. Cain benefits from Postmodernized Rings Twice and Double Indemnity, and I think that a real good case can be made for Earl Stanley, Stanley Gardner having a a real debt to Ray, Raymond Burr, for example, and and yeah. the and Christie made a big comeback because of the uh, the movies that were done, the wonderful movies that were done, and the TV show with David with, with David Suchet. And I said, and Mickey is going to Mickey is going to be in the pantheon, in part because Kiss Me Deadly is a great movie, and that will keep people coming back to that book and to his books. And I saw, and he was turning, just looking at me. Spillane was, just, yeah, and I could just see the wheels turning. And the next time he was interviewed, who was the best screen? Uh, who was the best screen uh, my camera? And he said, well, of course, Stacy on TV and I, and uh, Darren McGavin was good. Uh, but in the movies, Ralph Meeker, the star of Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah, did you guys talk about, did he talk to you about this after what you said? No? No, he said, well, next to me, of course, because he had played in the girl. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, but he, you know, so I turned him around on Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, and he also didn't, he also didn't like either jury, which I kind of don't understand because it's pretty, pretty darn faithful considering the source material. And the time at which it was made were the things that you couldn't necessarily do on camera. Right. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a, uh, house of prostitution that is passed off as a, a dance studio yeah. and stuff like that. And, and the, um, the crimes there don't make any, I mean, it, it, the mystery sort of doesn't 
add up to anything. But boy, does it feel like a paperback right. from 1952. You know, it's just great. You should tell people that don't know. I mean, first of all, we do want them to watch the documentary. Oh, yeah. But you guys, but you became really close to Mickey Spillane. To the point, aren't you the executor of basically his catalog? Yeah, I've done, I've done, finished 13, my, 13 or 14 Mike Cameron novels that he began and didn't finish. Uh, they, and I've done, I think, three others that were non-Mike Hammers. So ever since since about 2007, I've been every year done at least one Mike Hammer. I pulled this from my collection because oh, yeah. it's out of what we normally talk about. This is Western stuff, and I wanted to, to highlight that. Well, there's a that series is of these. A, that is a screenplay that he wrote for John Wayne. They were very good friends. Um, and... Uh, I ended up I ended up writing a whole series of it. Only the first book is a novelization of his screenplay, but that's a, just a funny thing about publishing because I I was sitting at at a BoucherCon, which is the big mystery writers convention and mystery fan convention, with an editor, a uh, friend of mine, and said, "You know what? I they were saying to me, you know, oh, you're doing this is interesting what you're doing with my camera novels." I said, "Well, you know, I have a western script by." A movie script by by Spillane, because I knew they they published westerns, a lot of westerns, and this editor, a woman named uh, Michael Hamilton, that's all she, I told her was. She said, "Can you do three? And I said, "Well, there's only one script, but I can do two more if you want me to." And so we did, I think, six or seven, a uh, Caleb York. Uh, westerns and i i've loved westerns and you know i'm a big western fan yeah and to get the chance at this late stage of my career to get to do some western novels uh and it was just a real treat i love doing those books i love doing those books you're everywhere in all genres so dick tracy for me was this huge event right i was coming out coming out of batman in 1989 sure uh, and into you know Dick Tracy 1990, it was huge for me. I read the novelization, and that's I knew you from that Dick Tracy novelization. I knew you from DC Comics of the post crisis, you know the the later 80s, like 87, 88. Uh, and Did you read that's Ms. what Tree? I knew. How about Miss Tree? I not not when I was a kid, not yet. I discovered that <laughs> a little bit later. Um, and then over the years everywhere i would go like all these whatever i would gravitate to there you were you know you had you had planted a flag in that particular thing and so you know you say something i i don't want to i'm not sure if this is a direct quote but in your the 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 spillane documentary you talk about how he called you and it was such a surreal moment for you because you're like yeah, i'm i'm talking to mickey spillane that's how I feel talking to yeah. you because oh, wow. you, 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 you know, you created so much of the, the escape, the, the things that I escaped into, you know, you were a huge part of my formative years. And now as an adult to get to enjoy, you know, quarry and the many, many things, you know, Western work and stuff like that. Cause I've just lately gotten more into Westerns. There you are, you know, I mean, it's all these different things that you've been able to do. So first I just want to say thank you for that because you are one of the architects of not just my childhood, but the last 30 years of my life, really. Well, I did something very sneaky. And that was uh, when, you know, when I lost Dick Tracy as a comic strip where I was scripting it, 
I had had this 1990, the novelization, which was very popular, sold a million copies. Wow. So I went to my to my agent when when I had when everything had dropped out and said, please put the word out to the not, you know, to the movie tie in people at the various publishers that I am available. And so nothing happened for a few few months, maybe. And I got a call from my agent. He said, I've got uh, got good news and bad news. I said, let's go with the good news. He said, the good news is they want you to to write the novelization of the new Clint Eastwood movie, which and I had just seen Forgiven, you know, which was a masterpiece. And and I said, well, I'm a big Clint Eastwood fan going back to the Italian Westerns. Absolutely. He said, here's the bad part. You've got to deliver it in eight days. And also, I was set to go to the uh, on day six of that. I was set to go to the to, to the Comic Con in San Diego. I had tickets and plane tickets, and my band Selection of the Innocent was going to play there. Uh, my band with Miguel Ferrer, Bill Mooney, Steve Lealoa, Chris Christensen, and um, I say my band. They probably all each say my my band, but uh, God. And that's you. all true. Everybody gets to claim it. And so, so my wife and I, and there, you know, the internet was really not a thing at that point. And so she, she did the research for me and it was a story in the line of fire. They go from city to city to city following this assassin. And so she would go and research, you know, I don't know, Cincinnati or whatever, and come back to me. Well, here's some stuff you could, you could work in about this town. Anyway, I did it. I did it. And uh, the funny thing is when we listened to the talking book of it, the audio book, you could just, the, 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 the amount of swearing in, the, in it just kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And I said, that's me. You know, as the character's having a nervous breakdown, I was having my nervous breakdown. And, and so, so it, the book worked really well. And it was, and so the word got around, hey, he's good. And he's fast, which is not necessarily the best thing to have people know, but yeah. whatever tracks clients is good. And I, at the same time, I had just resold the Nathan Heller series to uh, to Dutton, and they said to me, "Now look, we don't. You're prolific. We do not want you writing anything else but Nathan Heller." And, and you know you can do a pseudonym thing if you want to but keep it deep you know deep cover and so when this came up i i called my editor said what about novelizations of movies and tv oh that doesn't count don't worry about that so for about 15 years i was one of the key novelization guys in in the country uh lee goldberg and i started the uh you know association of International Association of Media and Tie-In Writers. And so I, I got to do a lot of really great things and I got to do some things that weren't that great, but were interesting to me. I mean, I did Saving Private Ryan, obviously In the Line of Fire, um, American Gangster, uh, U571. And so, but- Did you do Wind did, Talkers too? I did Wind Talkers, John yeah. Woo movie. I was, when I saw I yeah. could do a John Woo movie, it's like, okay. 
we'll have to put some flying birds in. Yeah, how do you how do you uh write this right here the sideways ballet, the gun ballet? I know. We just we just watched uh face off again the other night on on 4K. I did buy a 4K of uh yeah. of that. But but at any rate what I liked about what I liked about it was that I got to do a lot of genres that they wouldn't think of me for. I got to do war novel. I got to do western. I did Maverick and Maverick was my favorite TV show. I actually did a thing in Maverick where I I did it in first person because some of those Maverick shows with James Garner had a voiceover and I also buried the lyrics of the of the theme song so that by the time you got to the end of the book if you were a fan you'd realize I'd said uh, riverboat ring your bell or whatever it was they all were spread through the through the whole book then I got to do US Marshals which was the sequel to the fugitive and i good movie love the fugitive as a yeah. kid so, so i had all these opportunities then i got to do scorpion king and i got to do uh, i did Waterworld science fiction and so i was in all of these uh different genres and i got to you know learn how to do those genres bring my enthusiasm for those different genres you know to bear and sometimes it would be something like scorpion king uh it was not exactly a great script. And so I looked at it and, and one thing you have to do is you have to find a win. If you're going to do a novelization for me, I had to find a, again, if I can't go through the door, I've got to go through the window. I've got to find something about that material that I can, I can latch onto, you know, if it's a John Woo movie, that's easy, but Scorpion King and the rock was nobody yet. It was I mean, the eyebrow. Was, the the, yeah. the gateway was the eyebrow. Yeah. And, and and he had been in, and I had done the mummy movies. I had done all, I had done the mummy books, which again, that was got to universal horror kind yeah. of. And Indiana Jones at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I had a wonderful time writing those books. And uh, with the Scorpion King, I looked at it and I thought, Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'll do Edgar yeah, Rice yeah. Burroughs. And so I did, I did you know, because I loved him growing up. So it was all about, I'm all about enthusiasm. And I think you've, I would try to find something I could be enthusiastic about. Now, the funniest one was my agent called me and said, um, we have this movie called, they have this movie called Daylight they want you to do the novelization of. And send me the script and I read it and I said, this is terrible. I, I don't want anything to do with this. Is that okay? What can we get away with turning this down? And I had turned the last two down. And he said, you can turn it down, but you'll never get offered one again. Okay, so I studied the thing. And if you remember that movie, that's a, about this tunnel. It's a, it's a disaster movie. Yeah. So what I did was I wrote, I wrote it like it was a documentary and I did, um, uh, six or se six or seven points of view first person points of view of the survivors and i never wrote a chapter about the lead character who was played by stallone you you, you had to pick it up through the other people that were there and it, it i didn't ask permission to do it either and i thought i could really get in trouble but they loved it and they did a full cast audio of it and i hear about that every now and then that, that it was my best novelization so so that's being a professional to, as far as i'm concerned you've you you have this project that you think is terrible and then 
you find a way to do it any anyway and yeah. and i so i'm real proud of that that's probably the best novelization i i ever did but the punchline of this is okay and there is one is that i my agent did not want me to put my name on any of the novelizations and i said you know why would i not want my name on saving private ryan mm-hmm. and why would I want not want my name on something that's going to be seen a movie that's going to be seen by the ones that aren't hits are going to be seen by millions of people. And so I said, no, my name's going on. And the other thing is that a lot of kids and by kids, I mean, junior high and high school kids read novelizations. And they did at that time because they, we didn't have this physical media. Right. And so they, you know, I, I said, I want those. If you get somebody as a reader when they're young, like like you were, Keith, yeah. if you get them when you're young, you can hold on to them, and they will stick with you, and and they will. Do read. you know who else just said? I was doing so. Gene Autry said that very same thing. I was watching some right? Gene Autry movies, and he, so in the '80s, uh, he had a Melody Time Theater. Melody Time Theater. It was like you know what Joe Bob Briggs does for yeah, uh, yeah. his show, that wraparounds, that kind of thing. Um, he had that for it was on the Nashville network, which I guess became TNN, which I think became Spike TV. Long story short, he had one of his co-stars from a 1935 film on. And she said, you told me back in 1935, get them when they're young and they'll stay with you through their whole life. So you're in good company. You're up there with Gene Autry. Oh, that's pretty good. That's yeah. that's, that's very, very good. And and I look at it that way. And I so it was a. A learning experience to be able to because you know when you're when you're like me a mystery writer or a science fiction writer or a western writer you will be typed just like a you know like an actor will be ta- typed so nobody wanted me if i would pitch a science fiction idea it would be rejected because no stick stick to what you know stick to what they know you as and so the fact that i was able to do all these different kinds of movie novels I got to flex muscles and I got to learn things that I, you know, had never had the opportunity to learn. And so because I had done, you know, Maverick, when they came to me to do, uh, you know, the the Caleb York novels from the Mickey Spillane material, I wasn't like, oh, my God, can I write a Western? No, I'd already written a Western. Not a problem. Uh, And so, you know, so, so that's that's that story and that was a period of my career for about 15 years and and a lot of people came on board which was really really good in that period i mean the thing i'm proudest of are the nathan heller books and probably quarry and quarry is another wild story because of the fact that it it is a thing i did in college i started it in college so one of the first things i sold it ran four books done and then the years pass and the fan mail about the quarry novels continues quarry is a hitman a vietnam vet who becomes a hitman as i think you know so that happens gradually i'm like this doesn't seem like he's going away so i would write an occasional short story about him just to kind of keep him there and keep him in my mind then when charles r die started hard case crime this wonderful line of retro uh noir paperbacks uh 
he he reprinted a couple of my Nolan books and came back to me and said, uh, what should we reprint next? They had just started and they were basically doing reprints of people like Earl Stanley Gardner and so on. And I said, why, just give me the money that you would have given me for the reprint and let me let me do an original because I you know what you're doing is right up my alley I let me let me do this and so I ended up doing a book called The Last Quarry that was designed to be the finally to end the series and something very odd happened it was successful and I didn't, that was the one thing I wasn't anticipating. It was successful. We got interviewed in, got reviewed in uh, Entertainment Weekly. Oh, they, why did you not think, were you surprised that it was successful? I'm always surprised when anything's successful. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, I've been doing this a long, long time. And I've never had, I've, I've never had, the last real job I had other than a, a short teaching job was bagging groceries. Okay, so this has all been about avoiding a real job. My whole yeah. career is about avoiding a real job. And every time you finish one, you're like, what? Is there going to be another one? Is there going to be another one? Is it? And, and so it's always been that way. And, and I've, and I'd had a lot of movie options without any movies getting made. Yeah. And that's good the, the money comes in, you get a $2,000 check or something then road to perdition happens and the quarry tv show happens and that's now i got something i can put on the cover of the book by the author of road to perdition and you know but i still you know i still get rejected i mean all writers get re oh yeah you bet really well, particularly in this climate i need names names and addresses oh, I, I mean <laughs> if you think think an old white guy can easily get published in this climate it, it just it, it's just not it, it's uh, a lot of the stuff that you and I love is not universally loved by a couple of generations. Well, that's, that's what I it's our responsibility. Well, it's my responsibility. I won't obligate you because you're doing the work. It's it's our it's my responsibility to make sure that the younger generations are discovering this stuff and that. If they don't know who Quarry is, I got a video talking about hard case crime here, and it turned a lot of people on to hard case crime. If they don't know about it, and if the peer group that they hang out with isn't talking about it, where are they going to find this stuff out? That's why I make videos about Gene Autry or whatever, is because if you don't know about it, how can you find out if something's cool? It's uh, these these uh, these crime novels, and, and not just crime, but all the work that you've done over the years is fantastic. You have become the Spillane for my generation like you have taken up that mantle right well i, um, I try i mean we this all connects i'm gonna i'm gonna do a segue for you now okay and that segue i is, like that you're producing that's this is good segue is audie murphy because my quarry character in part was based on audie murphy who was the most decorated soldier of World War II and was just a kid, basically. Yeah. And I, I had a very good friend uh, whose name was John McRae, who who was funny, one of the gang, and he went all over and became, went to Vietnam and did several tours and had a harrowing experience over there and came back uh, a little damaged. And he was, 
he and Audie Murphy uh, were the basis of the Quarry character. And uh, interestingly, uh, the creator of, of, of Rambo, David Morrell, mm-hmm. had done the same thing. He and I, he actually taught at the University of Iowa for a while, so we would bump into each other in Iowa City. And he, uh, you know, we, we, we both talk, would talk about the fact that we both had based our, our characters on, you know, on Audie Murphy. That it, because um, and Murphy, if you if you read about him, he had some. I mean, he really had some serious uh, post traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. Uh, there there was one one story I read about him where he was speeding through I don't know Beverly Hills or something, and a cop pulled him over, and got out of the car and looked into the car, and there was Audie Murphy sitting there, and there was a forty five automatic on the seat next to him, and he. And he he supposedly said, "I'm sorry to do this, Mr. Uh, Mr. Murphy. I just wanted to tell you I'm a big fan." And then he went back to his his vehicle and just watched Murphy speed off. Because if Mur- if Murphy if you're with Audie Murphy and he's got a 45, yeah, you probably want to do whatever Audie Murphy wants you to to do. Uh, and, and also there was a thing uh, where he was at a a football game. And some uh, somebody came, started really giving him a bad some some mob guy started giving him a really bad time. Oh, you're not so tough, blah blah blah. And he said, you know, I killed a hundred of you guys in Sicily. One more isn't going to make a difference. And the guy just scooted. So so there's something about Murphy that that he conveys in those movies. Yeah. And one of the things that I find, and I know you're a fan, but one of the things that I notice a lot when I see these is it almost feels like a lot of the cast around him is overacting because they feel like, well, there's this amateur here who, who became a movie star because he was in life magazine and he needs our help. Meanwhile, he's understating everything. And it's the, by far the best performance in any one of his movies. And sometimes they're almost making fools out of themselves they're they're going they're 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 so overcompensating for somebody who doesn't need any help you know it was like when Laurence Olivier acted with Marilyn Monroe and uh Prince and the Showgirl and he thought well she's not doing anything until he saw the dailies and he realized oh my lord she's wiping the floor (laughs) the floor with me so but uh let me ask you, what drew you to Audie Murphy? Uh, the authenticity, I think. Um, the, you know, I'm still there. A lot of these Westerns, I'm still kind of getting to for the first time because I didn't yeah. grow up with them. And so <clears throat> when I see something like an Audie Murphy Western, uh, there is such a, it's that intensity. I mean, what is the movie? Is it Quantrill's Raiders? I'm trying to remember if that's the title of it. He's in a movie about Quantrill's Raiders. It's the one with Brian Don uh, Don Levy, right? And there's a scene in that movie where he's this guy kind of confronts him, and they have this they have this fight, and Murphy just gets the he's got this like big knife, and he just like starts stabbing the guy. It's off camera; you can't really see it, but I'm like, well, I don't know that I've seen that level of violence and that level of intensity because I mean, it's in his eyes, right? Um, in a movie like this and there's other you know there's other the thing that bothers me is that people say 50s westerns are 
safe and they're tame and they are oh. saccharine and they and I'm like, have you watched any of them? Because they're the exact opposite of that. The fifties are the purest form of. Well, the the first the first movies the first westerns I saw other than what was on TV when the craze started, um, they were the Randolph Scott uh, Bud Becker. Oh movies. my goodness! Yeah, I've seen those. I'm I'm like I don't know eight years old seeing these in the theater, and and I was seeing the Searchers in the theater when I was a little kid, and I was yeah. seeing, uh, you know, well, Murphy, no no name on the bullet. Yeah which is and he and what's interesting too about these collections that that, that the great Kino is doing what a, what a line these people have is he's got some damn good directors working with him yeah uh, uh bud, bud bedeker again is a director who works with him don siegel you don't get better than don siegel on on action movies and then um one uh destry is george marshall who directed the original james stewart one yeah. and and was it did i think he did the blue dahlia which is a raymond chandler screenplay and he did my one of my absolute favorite movies do you know this movie murder he says with fred mcmurray and helen walker yes i think it's maybe the funniest movie ever made it's certainly in the 1940s it's it's hilarious and it's a fred and fred mcmurray who Yes, he was a good light comedian, but we know him for double indemnity and, and and a lot of fairly dark roles. Well, see, that's what's interesting to me is that I grew up, I, I mean, I'm the Nick at Night generation. I discovered Fred McMurray through my three sons and then uh, Absent Minded Professor. And I'm like, well, he, you know, he's a comedic guy. And then you hit double indemnity and you're like, whoa, you know, this is a different thing. And Pushover, which, which is with uh, Kim Novak. Yes. And, um, and then the, you go, so I think, was it, I'm trying to remember which came first, if it was double indemnity, double indemnity or is it Remember the Night? What's the one he did with Stanwyck where they go? Remember the Night Mar was first, and that's a really good movie. It is really good. Yeah. It's a really good, and it's a Christmas movie. It's yeah. It's not Christmas movies. Uh, <clears throat> but he's also in The Apartment. Yes. In a pretty dark part. You yes. Know. Um yeah so i am a bit of a movie <laughs> yeah. i love movies i just love uh, and and it's been uh, i don't you know i don't read much fiction anymore um uh, i do read some but i really don't read in my genre that much because i'm a bit of a mimic and i get in you know i can if i read elmore leonard i'll start writing like elmore leonard uh and it really hit me at one point where uh, when I turned from, I would say, fan into strictly pro, I was doing the the second Nolan book, which was called Blood Money, which was probably written about the fourth book in because uh, they weren't all sold in the same order that I wrote them in. But I was reading George V. Higgins, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Remember mm -hmm. that? which was a great movie with and he had he was very quirky in his dialogue it was good good stuff and i found i'm writing like george v higgins i got it i can't get this i can't i can't shake it so i i stopped reading that stuff i stopped reading that and i i do revisit i do revisit hammett 
Chandler, Spillane. I was an early advocate of Jim Thompson. Um, I love I love Rick, Rick Stout's Narrow Wolf. Uh, those books are. I don't know if you've if ever read those, but I haven't. No, those are worth those are worth it because he did as good a he did as good a first person really as anybody almost with the possible exception of Chandler. Uh, but I mean it. There, there. If you if you ever saw the um, AME that had Tim Hutton in it, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. A pretty good accurate okay. uh, what those are like. But they're first person, you know, the first person mysteries, and they're they're just a wonderful place to go. Can you still read Donald Westlake? Or I had read you... everything. I had read everything because uh, he was the last big influence on me yeah and uh i did keep reading him well that when i said i stopped reading contemporaries i kept reading westlake mickey once in a while published something i always read ed mcbain 87th precinct mysteries Mm -hmm. those are fabulous so um anybody i have been read it's funny anything buddy i've been reading as a fan I kept reading. They, they'd already had their, they'd already had their way with me. Got their hooks in you, yeah. That's interesting. Because it, the reason I was asking is so many of the like Westlake uh, Charles at uh, Hard Case Crime has published new, new Westlake, and I was, well, have you read those? Oh, you have. You've seen well, I them. found one of them. The one, uh, the comedy is finished. You with, found it? Yeah. Well, he, he, I didn't find it. He had given it to me. Uh, we were pretty close. Uh, he, he was, uh, he, not too many people can say that Donald Westlake, Mickey Spillane, and then, and Richard Yates, uh, uh, author of Revolutionary Road were their mentors. Well, but I can claim that. And, uh, and it's actually has the benefit of being true. Uh, the, the thing about, uh, Westlake is he, he was not selling that book. Nobody was. Nobody's buying it. And again, you get, you can be Donnelly Westlake and get rejected. You just, you just can. And so he sent it to me and he said, see what you think. And I said, I think the ending is wrong. You think you need a a little, little bit of something on there. He said, well, you, you, you do something with it. You finish it and we'll do something with it down the road. And um, I don't, I did Actually, the book as published as the last page is something I that was written by me. I don't think I don't know if Charles even knows that, but uh, let's not tell him. I, I did that, and I, I I think I sent it. I think I photocopied it and sent it back to Don, and he, and he never did anything with it. And then I had it. I had that copy. That la- the copy he had sent me with my last page in it, and I told Charles. I said I have one of these. And it's a good book. Basically, as Bob Hope gets kidnapped. And, oh, I know. I'm remembering now. He pulled it off the market because, and I I don't remember whether it was whether after I did my little rewrite or after he had some difficulty selling it, he thought it was too much like uh, King of Comedy. King of Comedy came out. And he said, if I publish this, they're going to say I'm imitating King of Comedy. Which also tells you when this was. So you, you said you had some questions for me. What haven't I answered? 
Uh, wow. I mean, this was great. Um, let's sell some books. You know, by the way, we didn't even you've referenced Road to Perdition a few times. Incredible story, first of all, incredible film adaptation. And uh, if people aren't familiar with you, I, I mean, I hope most people are. But in case they're not, it's a good place to start. Right. I, I mean, I know you love Road to Perdition. Well, I'll give you I'll give you another anecdote because okay. I have a million of them. Um, so the first after I got fired from Dick Tracy there, I went to uh, the WonderCon in Oakland. And I don't remember the sequence exactly, but I went to but it was shortly after I got fired from Dick Tracy. It was 1993 and an editor there. Um, contacted me and said uh would you i want to have a meeting with you and so so i met with him and he said we are going to start a line called vertigo one of my favorite movies so that was a good sign right there uh we're, we're going to do the we're going to do a series of graphic novels that are you know that are all noir and you right now this was true at the moment it isn't now you're the only mystery writer publishing mystery writer who also writes comics we want you to do one and do you have any ideas and often <laughs> i've been watching a lot of lone wolf and cub movies with my son nathan and i've been reading been watching a lot of john woo movies and i had done research on the gangster john looney and his son connor in rock island with the thought of doing something with it it actually been something i had turned up in the research for true my first book true detect first nathan heller book true detective and it had kind of hadn't made the cut or it's only in there a little bit so anyway uh the editor said um do you have any ideas and i said well i you know i said do you, are you familiar with lone wolf and cub and he said yes i said well, i want to do a version of I want, to, I want to do an homage to that, basically. And this is just me just talking off the top of my head. I do that in as, uh, you know, 30s gangsters. And because it'll be the same, the Godfather is the same as the Shogun. And, you know, and they can, you know, they can travel in their, in their, you know, in their fliver and all this stuff. And it'll be cool. And uh, I was going to call it Gun and Son which I still think is a good title, but he thought it was a terrible title. So you need to come up with something else. I said, okay. And, and I also had been thinking, I also had this stuff about John Looney and his son. So I said, and the, 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 the Godfather will have a, a crazy son. And I, so I basically kind of gave him a elevator pitch spontaneously. And, um, he said, yeah, let's do this. We'll do this. Because he the first thing he said to me was he wanted something, he wanted something like Nathan Heller. And of course, you know Nathan Heller, private eye in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who deals with real crimes. Real crimes that are controversially unsolved or solved. And yeah, that's that this is one of the things I wanted to, I do love that we've tracked this character through multiple decades and yeah. seen the changes through his eyes, which is a really cool hook for the reader. Well, and, and that was getting some publicity at the time. And I thought, okay, I'll do, I'll do an eight holographic novel for him. Yeah. And he said, 
Well, we, we want something like Nathan Heller, but we, we want something new because it's DC and we want our own stuff. So, so, so that's when I just sort of spontaneously riffed on, uh, road to on what would become road to perdition. Mm -hmm. Gun and son. So, so he, uh, so I came up with the title road to perdition and I wrote probably a, some kind of synopsis or something. So he said, I have this really great artist in England, Richard Pierce Rayner, and he's wonderful, but I have to warn you, he's, he's slow. I said, I don't care. I mean, I'm not doing anything else. So, so we, and I saw his work and the work is just like phenomenal. So what do I do? He said, well, give, give me 25 pages. So I wrote 25 pages. So what was going to be a 300 page graphic novel? So over the next, I don't know, three years, four years, I would get the occasional phone call from this editor saying, I need more pages. And then I would go like, more pages of what? <laughs> and then he'd say, Road to Perdition. I go, oh, yeah. And then I'd write another 25, 30 pages, send it in. Did, so you're it. writing this kind of piecemeal. Did you know where it was going? Had you kind of mapped it out ahead of time? That's that's almost another story because okay. we, we were supposed to do three. Three 300-page books, which was a great gig. I mean, for a writer to say, I got 900 pages they're going to pay me to write. Right. And after I turned in this, what became the second section of three, because they were going to publish them as individual books. Each section was an individual book of 100 pages. And then it would be collected, and then I'd start another one. That mm -hmm. was the plan. That was a grandiose plan that gotcha. didn't go. So after the second book was turned in, nothing had been published yet. He said, the you know we're, we've we've been canceled the the line has been canceled so you've got to finish it so then i wrote then i came up with what the last increment was which okay. is pretty much what i had intended to do at the end of the 900 pages because i was going to do the father and son on the road having these kind of like the fugitive mm -hmm. having these adventures with the mob guys chasing them and the law chasing them and, and you know do that shtick and uh I ended up after the movie came out doing a another increment of them on the called on the road to perdition two, and so we did eventually do something with it. Uh, but um, this thing went on for yeah. I don't know five years or something, and and the work was just stunning. If you've seen the book, you know what it's like. It's great, and so when we finished and turned it in, the editor told me they're not going to publish it. The line is the line is over, the line is dead. And it just there's there's no format that DC has that it, it fits into. You're going to be paid, don't worry about it. And I said, but this is the best thing I ever did in comics. I mean, I've been doing comics since 1977. And this is the thing I'm most proud of. And uh, so I called Paul Levitz, who was the the head of DC at the time, you as a comics person, you probably know that name. Legion of Superheroes. Good writer. And so I said, Paul, and we knew each other a little bit, but he, he didn't have, I mean, we weren't buddies. I said, please take a look at Road to Perdition and see if you can't think of a way to, you can't justify publishing it. Because it's, you know, a lot of work went into it. You guys spent a lot of money on it. Um, and it's the best thing I ever did in comics. 
God bless him. He did it. He was the publisher. He says, oh, I don't care if the line's over. We're publishing this. And and uh, it did okay. I mean, we got some good reviews and it sold fine. And that was 1998. And then in, I guess, 2001, I got the phone call from my agent saying, who's the, who's the biggest star in Hollywood right now? And I said, I don't know, Bruce Willis. He said, no, Tom Hanks. He's going to star in your movie. <laughs> what movie is that? Road to Perdition. And then, you know, then there'd be like, the next day I'd get the phone call. I'd be like, you know who else is in it? Paul Newman. Right. Okay. Fine. <laughs> and then, then then the next day I'd get a phone call. to be like, who won the Academy Award for Best Directing last year? I said, Sam Mendes for American Beauty, right? He said, yes. And he's going to direct Road to Perdition. And then it was the Jude Law phone call. And, and of course, Daniel Craig wasn't anybody yet, but yeah. he turned out but to be he would be. They right. turned out to be James Bond. So the, and then uh, this amazing cast is put together. Uh, and uh, what can I say? I mean, these, these things happen once in, the, in, a, in a lifetime if you're lucky. And, you know, I got to go to the set. And I got to, you know, uh, talk to everybody, hang out with. with uh, and we went to, th I think, three premieres, one in England. And, uh, I mean, it was, uh, yeah. It was the one brief shining moment, you know. <laughs> no. And, and then, then, meanwhile, it's back to Muscatine, Iowa, and eating at the diner. What can I say? So I have to ask you this: as someone who has been adapt, you you've adapted many stories, yeah, from screenplays into a novel. How does it feel to see your your source material adapted into a film? Well, Is they it did hard? a great job. They did a really great job and they, they solved some of the problems that I would have had to solve if they'd let me write it, which was that it was very episodic and they had to give it more of a through line. And they really did that with Jude Law because he's not a character in the graphic novel. He, there are a succession of hitmen that follow them because there were three there were three episodes, basically. Right. Uh, so I think they did a really good job on that. Um, I think that uh, Mendes used a British writer to do a rewrite on David Self's screenplay, an uncredited rewrite, and I thought some of the dialogue sounded a little British to me, uh, and I that was just a little writerly, but but the movie is terrific, and some of my dialogue is in there, which you know which is nice because the, yeah. the Self was very faithful to my graphic novel almost too faithful and, and and that can happen with adaptations i i think i have a different attitude toward adaptations of my stuff than some people do because i'm very fussy about my stuff about my book but if somebody gives me money to make a movie out of it or something god bless you if you need my help let me know i mean and then i can enjoy it on its like the quarry series really lacks the humor of the books, which is to me very key, but taken on its own terms, it's a good piece of work. And there's, and it's funny because I would sit there watching it and I'd be watching it with, with my wife and I would say, this doesn't really have much to do with anything I ever wrote. And then the next thing would be like an exchange of dialogue right out of one of my books. And I go, never mind. <laughs> but, but, but it, you know, it, 
it, it reminds me of James M. Cain when he was interviewed once, and he had wonderful, some wonderful movies made out of his books. I mean, Post Noir Drinks Twice, Double Indemnity. Are you kidding me? And 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 somebody interviewing him said, "What? Uh, how do you feel about what they've done to your books?" And he's sitting in a study. He says, "They didn't do anything to my books. They all are." And that's true. It it leads people to your books when you you have an adaptation. I mean, I saw. I mean, I wouldn't have done Nolan if I hadn't have read Don Lee Westlake's Richard Stark novels about Parker, which I started reading because of Point Blank, the movie Point Blank. But I always was somebody led to the source material when I watched movies. If I saw a movie was based on a novel, if I liked that movie at all, I'd have to read the novel. Yeah. As, as a little kid, I had to. I mean, I, I was eight years old reading Topper by Thorne Smith. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure he understood maybe a tenth of it, you know. But. You were reading Topper and you were watching those gritty Bud Bedecker movies at the cinema. You had a, you're just being blasted by all this hard hitting storytelling as a, as a very young kid. I owe it all to my mom because she, she would, she read me Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan, Tarzan, the Forbidden City, Tarzan in the City of Gold. And she did, uh, and she turned me on to Dick Tracy when I was seven years old. Now, Dick Tracy in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is the stuff they were reprinting in the comic right. books. Never been a more violent comic strip. Mm -hmm. he, like headshots and stuff. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. the bullet would come twirling out with with blood yeah. and, and gore. And she made you who you are. Well, yeah, and and you know, I, I have a letter in the other room where uh, she wrote, uh, my mom wrote uh, Chester Gould, the creator of Dick Tracy, and sent him some drawings I had done of Dick Tracy because I wanted to be a cartoonist. And he wrote me a letter with a drawing of Dick Tracy. Like I say, it's on the wall over here. And uh, said, you know, you draw my, my picture better than anybody your age in the country. You know, uh, happy birthday, happy eighth birthday, uh, Dick Tracy and Chester Gould with that Chester Gould signature. I'm eight years old. My fate was sealed. Yeah. My fate was sealed. Uh, it's like I say, I think my engine is, is enthusiasm as I, that's what's always kept me going. That's a good through line here because you started talking about enthusiasm and uh, making your own opportunities is what it comes down to. You, you do not accept no. You find a way to do what you want to do. I, I want to show something off because I am a physical media collector. Okay. Just like you, trying not to be absorbed by our collections. Exactly. So the, the Sting, the Sting is a movie that Richard Zanuck, who produced Road to Perdition, produced. So I ordered all of the universal, you have these universal, uh, yeah, okay. And, yeah. and they've, they've done the Big Lebowski and it came from yeah. outer space. And okay, I want to show you something. This is absolutely just something that happened. This okay. was not done to me because I'm a special human being. First of all, I'm not a special human being. But second of all, I want to show you what was in my, see, uh, this is what was in my, Whoa, you got number one. 
Do you even believe that? But you know what, Max? Mine's number one, too. No, it isn't. No. It isn't. <laughs> Show them yours. I have number 2,300. Okay. Well, we, we have zeros in common. Yeah. And, and I want you to know that I'm not stingy. If there's some huge Sting fan out here that, that this you know that wants this, just you can have it for free. Just send me a thousand dollars postage, <laughs> and I will put it in the mail to you. Thousand yeah, dollars. They don't give that away. Hang on to that. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to give it away for a thousand. My no, son, my son's the one who opened the package, and he said, "What you did? Are they all number one?" That's <laughs> just a it's just a joke. Just make have everybody you ever, have you ever special. seen a number one on any one of these? No, no, no. I've never seen one. So, and it's yeah. a thing in fandom too. Like it, if your number is lower, it's apparently more appealing. I get. I mean, I get. Like one is of course a big deal, but some people are like, I got number eighty six. Like okay, <laughs> okay, good, good for you, man. Well, and here's the thing that is the secret message about physical media and the one that we all who love physical media and love the box sets and love have to keep in mind i have number one this thing the movie is no better or no worse because i have number one if if this when, when you're collecting these boxes and you don't even like the movie you need help you need help and I have, I you know, I have that, I have that same problem because I, 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 you know, I love this stuff, and the box sets that they're putting out now are, let's face it, amazing. But you said it; they're not baseball cards. They're becoming baseball cards. Yeah, they are. They're becoming, but and I, you know, and and when we're, that's one of the things I really do. Uh, I'm gonna blow a little smoke up your skirt, Heath. You love movie. You love movies. I do, yeah. and that's clear. And some people love collecting. I'll go with the the movie lover every time. Yeah, that's nice of you to say. I also love books, especially books written by you well, and nice. films made by you. Let's uh, reference. We're gonna wind this down. We should. Do, we got to do this again. This has got to be like one of a series of of conversations. So, Too many bullets is the newest one, right? This is the newest hard case crime novel that's hitting shelves, digital or physical, everywhere. Yeah, and it's 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 about it's about the uh, Robert Kennedy assassination. Because again, what 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 the Hiller books do? I take a crime, a famous crime. That's either been solved controversially, like, you know, did the guy who was executed for the limber kidnapping really pull the kidnapping, that kind of thing, or is just flat out unsolved, but famous, uh, or is a mystery like uh, Amelia Earhart or Roswell or, you know, that, that you can wrap a mystery story around, but I researched them as if I were going to do the definitive nonfiction treatment. Then I write a private novel instead. And so Nathan Heller is very much a Philip Marlowe, Mike Hammer, Sam Spade school, hard-boiled detective. Where he does very a little bit is that he starts, he, he ages through the years. So he's in his early 20s at the beginning of, of the series. And by, you know, by the time you get to the end, toward the end, 
he's in his 50s 60s and uh i have found that to be kind of an interesting way to approach these characters uh you mentioned quarry i've got a quarry book coming out in december i think it's december called quarry's return and quarry is 71 years old in it which is very interesting because are you writing what you know writing what i know he had and he he had open heart surgery too so you know because i do think if you find somebody who's writing a series somebody like robert b parker or whoever is writing a first person private private eye or amateur sleuth series these are hidden autobiographies they're you know they're they're metaphorical autobiographies what's yeah. going what's going on in their lives as they as they as they read because what else do you have to draw from if you don't draw from your life and and what you observe you're just drawing from other books and i didn't i had written i think three or four books in high school my god bless my parents they let me um they would let me not get a job in the summer if i wrote so they, they they subsidized me and they kept my allowance going. I got my dollar fifty. That's how. That's now you can figure out how old I am, because because that was my allowance was a was a dollar fifty. But I, I I would write the book during the summer and I would during the year school year I would uh, try to market it, and of course I wouldn't ever sell it. But by the time I got to college, I'd written four books, so I used a lot a lot but those books were from books okay they were not from my life they were not from my observation they were not from my generation and one of the first things i did in like bait money and those early books they were about that they were about that era they were about the late 60s early 70s also writing about my part of the country I write a lot about Iowa and Illinois because that's where I live. Yeah. And when I started out, they told they almost virtually told you, well, you should be writing about New York or, or L.A. Last time I looked, you could, you, you know, you could do crime anywhere. And we have a rich heritage in Iowa and Illinois and the Midwest of the outlaws That's plus right. the Capone gang. I mean, I was always was as a kid fascinated by Wyatt Earp and Elliot Ness. We didn't even talk about Elliot Ness. Okay, hold on. We got to talk about Elliot Ness because you've done a ton with yeah. with Ness. Well, I was fascinated by the fact that the very first thing they did with Elliot Ness was they based a two-parter on uh Desi Lu Playhouse, uh, based on his book about Capone. And it was one of those things where lightning struck. It was like everybody was talking about that series. Every school kid was talking about it. So right away, they, they started doing the Untouchables TV show. And they did a combination of doing real, for a long time anyway, they did a combination of doing real real criminals 
They use Frank Nitti a lot from the uh, from the Capone mob, but they would do Mad Dog Call and uh, you know you just a ton of the real real criminals, real you know gangsters, the real uh, mob guys. And but Ness was not involved with, in real life with hardly any of them. So it was this weird combination of they're doing reality stuff with turning Elliot Ness basically into Dick Tracy. And of course, Dick Tracy was actually based on Elliot Ness, which is something I found out by questioning Chester Gould. Uh, but <clears throat> Elliot Ness uh, became kind of like very similar to Wyatt Earp. And they became in our culture two, you know, two hot button subjects because there were all kinds of books and things done saying, well, Elliot Ness wasn't a big deal. Wyatt Earp wasn't really a big deal. And so there's a lot of, of uh, revisionist history about those those two. And what happens is it, it it they overreacted to how famous they got in the culture. And you could forget what they really did. And Ness had a very interesting life. A lot of it not in, in Chicago, most of it in Cleveland. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp had an extremely interesting life and was involved in all kinds of stuff. So I wrote about him in a book called Black Hats. So, so I always, always had kind of a fascination for who were the historical figures that fed our popular culture? Uh, definitely Wyatt Earp fed the, the, the lawman, the, the Western lawman. Okay. I'm not sure what figure, and you might have an idea, what figure, cowboy figure, would have fed the cowboy image, because that's a separate thing from the lawman. You know, the lawman is really an urban, even though it's a little town, maybe Dodge City, or, but it's still urban. Mm-hmm. But the you know the cowboy the Red River kind of thing that's a that's a different kind of hero yeah so but but definitely Wyatt Earp fed that myth and definitely Elliot Ness fed the uh, you know the the, the crime besting uh, who's a more famous Amer real life detective in American history than Elliot Ness what do you think about the De Palma film. Well, De Palma is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, and I think the film is very watchable, but I think the Mammoth script is horrible. Uh, I was actually offered the Mammoth script to novelize it. And it was with a company that I had two books already written in a, that were, that hadn't been published yet but they had bought about Elliot Ness in Cleveland in his years as the police commissioner, essentially the public sa safety director of Cleveland. And they said, if you would novelize that, because I was doing the novelizations at the time, if you would do the novel of the Untouchables movie, you know, we could tie it all in. And I should have, but I didn't because I didn't like the script and I couldn't see how I could take this incredibly inaccurate script, turn it into a novel that would lead into my very accurate Elliot Ness novels. So I pro if I had to do it over again, I'd probably just do it as a commercial thing that would help the other two books. But it, it, 
it, it's 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 a terrible script. I mean, it it has a couple of really good lines in it. Uh, you know, the thing about uh, you know this that's the Chicago way. You know, that's a, that's a great little speech. But he also has Mounties chasing bootleggers when you went to Canada because it was legal in Canada. So why are the Mounties chasing bootleggers? He also changed, and this he he changed juries in the middle of a trial. Now historically, the juries were switched, but at the beginning of the trial, how do you change a jury in the middle of a trial? You can't. You have to start over. So anyway, it was sloppy. And on the last page of the script, it said, uh, you know, that Elliot Ness had, you know, Elliot Ness died, and then there was like a a line and then a, an asterisk have somebody look this up and i'm like how much are you getting paid for doing this script i hated it i hated the script but de palma kind of doesn't know how to make an uninteresting movie he's he's a he, i love fan of the paradise for example yeah uh i i love obsession i love uh carrie i mean what's he, he was he was and is a great filmmaker so <clears throat> but you said it earlier story counts you've given me a lot to think about here because i love the untouchables um but i think well, what I, I, own it. I, I own it i i i like it as a movie what i love about it is the visual language of it and oh, yeah. the uh the grandeur i mean that it, just think about the last shot of the movie is it's it's they they walk out they're on the street and then it's like this big crane shot that just looks you know just ascends into the sky of chicago it's got a lot of myth mythological um larger yeah, than I, I can't watch him i can't watch ness throw frank nitty off a roof yeah that that's that's a that's a bridge too far for me so you have all this knowledge about the source but about the truth that i don't have and that's the problem that's the thing i do resent is when when a movie rewrites the history and misinforms people mm -hmm. because there was plenty of good stuff to do with frank nitty that you didn't have to make stuff up that's a lazy screenplay that's a guy who was asked to write an untouchables screenplay and he just wrote one and and it has good stuff in it i mean that speech that that sean connery gives us a honey i i'd love to have written that speech you know uh you know the speech i'm talking about he you know yeah. forget exactly what the cadence is but it ends up with saying it's the chicago way <clears throat> so it's one of the most quotable movies of the 1980s you've done your duty go home and sleep well and then yeah what are you prepared to do and then yeah uh and then the whole scene the um and remember the, i was looking at the screenplay not the movie yeah because what they yeah. don't know about novelizers is we we never saw the movie till we went to the movie and i mean till the book was out because right. the book and the movie are going to be out at the same time. And you might be working from a much earlier version of the screenplay, too. Yeah. Which can times. be cool because it ends up giving us a glimpse at something that never made it to screen. In some cases, you're getting scenes that were never in the final film, um, which is one of the attractions of a novelization right. in the first place. That's what brings us to them. Yeah. 
but I hear what you're saying about, you know, that's my problem with Elvis, the, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie is that it's largely just a work of fiction. You know, they've kind of created the, they've turned Elvis into a superhero essentially. And I, uh, and, and <laughs> I did a video about it here. Um, uh, and somebody was like, yeah, but a lot of it's true. Like the scene, blah, blah. And then the name is seen. And I'm like, no, that didn't happen. And they're like, well, yeah, but when he was so moved by, I think it's the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um, and he goes, and then he writes or he, he performs, um, if I can dream, I'm like, no, that's not how that happened either. You know, you know, too much to enjoy the thing. This, your knowledge becomes a barrier to the enjoyment. Well, that's a fascinating topic because I, I and I, I don't know where I land on it. I mean, there's part of me that knows. Cause it's so like I was saying earlier about an adaptation of my work. I, I, I want to take it on its own terms and try mm -hmm. not to bring that baggage along. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so it's, it's, it, it's a tough one. Um, because the Baz Luhrmann movie is a very entertaining movie, but it's, you know, not terribly accurate. Is that our, is that our problem or is it, because it sure worked on a lot of people and the, it sure uh, did. Yeah. Untouchables works on a lot, a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. You know what else needs to work on a lot of people is Mike Hammer's Mickey Spillane, ah. which is available now on blu-ray you also get so first of all the documentary is incredible i told you i watched it uh without the commentary and then with the commentary which is great you also get the full encore for murder uh production with gary sandy and, and i should say this and I, i'd be very happy for for your input uh i d i originally took to uh vci just encore for murder as a uh, bonus feature. I didn't envision it being brought out separately, but I think that the thinking of that is that it can go out to the audience of people like Radio Spirits who buy the buy the old radio shows. Because what it is, uh, and this is be my last anecdote, I promise. <laughs> but I got last year I got approached by somebody saying uh, we want to raise some money for the local art center. That's a good thing. And um, we, you know, we thought maybe you could write a Dick Tracy radio show for us. And I indignantly said, well, they fired me off of Dick Tracy, so I don't do Dick Tracy anymore. And, uh, you know, and did a little diva thing, I suppose. And so then I went home and I thought, they want me to do a play. And I had done uh, these two audio plays with Stacy Keach. Um, and one of them we won the the best original script, uh, Audie. And so we had produced them as a play, as a you know, where where you got the scripts, the, the radio a radio show play in both Owensboro, Kentucky and uh, Clearwater, Florida with Gary Sandy. Gary being a friend of mine who had been in Mommy's Day. He was he had a he was one of the leads in my movie Mommy's Day. So, frankly, they they said to me uh, uh, they they took that they were glad to have me do the my camera thing and and so I they said well would you contact Gary Sandy? I said well I, Gary's not gonna come do a free benefit for the art center in Muscatine. 
would you please call him? I said, well, I'll, I'll call him. And so I called him and I asked him. And he said yes, because he's a mensch. And he, you know, so I then went to the first rehearsal. He wasn't there. I mean, he only came in the last few days. But I went to the first rehearsal and I thought, these people, this is local people, right? But they're local people who've been involved in theater. Yeah. They were good. They were, and I went home to my wife and I said, would you come to the next rehearsal with me? Because I think these people are good. And I want to know if I just want them to be good. In my, you know, and she's tough, Barb. And we came back and she said, no, they're, 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 pretty, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. So we're, so, so Gary comes down a day early and they start working on it. And I, we've got the whole production with the, you know, the big screen and back with scene setting slides. And I said, I should, I better shoot this. <laughs> and so, yeah. so I called my, my uh, cinematographer pal and who I hadn't made a movie with since 2006 and said, what are you doing this weekend? And uh, he, uh, and, I, and I said, let's not, let's let this float off into the ether. Let's grab it. And so we grabbed it. And then uh, Chad Bishop, who had been, uh, he, he had actually been the uh, Foley guy on stage. Cause you know, you, you, you want to do that radio thing where you get to see what they're doing to make the sound mm -hmm. effects. Cause that's, yeah, all of yeah, that yeah. stuff. And, and, and he, he uh, is a film editor. And so uh, I said, let's, let's put this together as a, and see what we got. And then again, I'm like, this seems pretty good to me. I think this is kind of entertaining. And so, uh, so, so I knew we were doing the expanded Phil and I were working on the expanded, my camera documentary. And so I thought, well, let's offer it as a, as a special feature. And it's like a 61 minute feature and a 90 minute special feature, but, mm -hmm. uh, and people seem to be responding to it really well. I mean, it's a, I mean, Keith, it's a local cast and they're, pretty, I know you're pretty good. They are. It's very good. You knew what you were doing when you filmed it because it's got a wider appeal and Gary Sandy's great. Let's just say that Gary oh, Sandy yeah. is fantastic as that character, the the voice, right? Is the, the commanding booming voice. Uh, but you're right. The, the, this, this, the supporting cast is uh, the rest of the cast is really great as well. It does not feel like um, local. Amateur night at Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but no, it, it feels it feels like something that. And, and how? What was the? Tell me again. How quickly the window for this? Like, how long did they spend with the material? How quickly did it come together? Oh, about f four or five days. I mean, Crazy. we 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 shot we shot some there was two dress rehearsals and and a performance and we shot the two dress rehearsals stuff on the two dress rehearsals the first dress rehearsal was very loose and then uh and they were sort of in costume for it so it, mm -hmm. it it's a little bit of a hybrid it's a little bit acted out yeah uh and again i i the, one of the things we had happen to us was one of the one of the hd cameras went out the last, I think, 10 minutes of the performance. And we we used the dress rehearsal and it was fine. But, uh, you know, and then when I was going to do Blue Christmas, that was the door I went in when, when we 
we were up for a uh, a fifty thousand dollar grant, which I thought would be enough to make a movie out of Blue Christmas, and then we didn't get it. Yeah. And then I was like, "Well, let's do it anyway." I mean, come on, we can do this. We can, and so, you know, so I initially thought, "Oh, well, I'll do it as a play, and we'll shoot it just like we did." Actually, I thought it was do it as a radio play, and I thought, mm-hmm. "Well, we've done that," and you know, we just dug in and did it as a movie. I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy with Blue Christmas. I mean, people seem to first of all. And this again, we're ta- not not to be condescending or patronizing to my fellow indie filmmakers, but if you have a good solid story, and your cast doesn't suck, you have a shot at doing something people will like to like to watch. It's really that simple, and you know it's you got and and people like sto- people like story. Let's face it. Look at what's behind you Heath? one story after another story after another story and and most of these never happened these are all kind of dreams other people's dreams that you get to access that's why we love what i tell people i say i don't love shiny discs i love stories these are the key to the story it's how i access the story story is the thing the play is the thing as you said well, I think back to the fact, and this isn't that long ago, at least in terms of my life. I was, you know, sitting in a, I was, I was sitting in a theater that my, my father had a, my father did a, a, a male chorus and he, he, he directed a male chorus and they had a annual concert and he was great, actually, my dad, but I had to go and I had to go all three nights because that's how my father rolled yeah so i was sitting in that audience and i knew that there was a lee van cleef movie on at 7 7 30 that night and so i excused myself and i went home and i watched the lee van cleef movie on nbc or whatever and came back in time for the curtain call and everything because in those days if you didn't see it when they put it on the TV, you had to hope they maybe reran it. Yeah. And if you think I didn't stay home from church to see the Maltese Falcon, you don't know me very well. I mean, I, I would, my parents got wise to it real soon, but I mean, I used to get sick all the time so I could stay home and watch the, watch a movie. I mean, uh, any film goer, any film goer didn't spend their childhood trying to, you know, of my generation, didn't spend their childhood trying to con their parents into letting them stay home from school with a stomach ache so you could watch, a, you know, watch the, the road to Zanzibar. You want to tell people about your weekly writing, your, your, your website? Well, yeah, I do. I do an update every week. It appears on Tuesday and it sometimes... I just talk about stuff and sometimes it, it's, it, it's me hawking my wares. Uh, it just, every week I just come in, what do I want to talk about? And, uh, and my son does it for me, my son, Nathan, prepare to be impressed. My son, Nathan is a Japanese to English translator. He, he is the translator on the Jojo's Bizarre Adventures manga. 
he translated Battle Royale. He's the real deal. Very wow. proud of him. Yeah. Wow. And he's also, he was Mickey, was he Mickey Spillane's godson? Yeah, his godson. Yeah. Just a little thing there. Yeah. That's that, that, yeah, he, he knew Mickey well. He and, and Mickey were, you know, it was always fun to see them together because it was two kids. It was two, two, one of them was bigger, but they were both kids. Mickey Spillane, by the way, was one of the sweetest human beings I have ever met. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, it's funny that he, created the most hard-boiled private detective character. I mean, they all come from, they all come from Mike Hammer. Shaft, Jack Reacher, you know, they all come from, they all come from Mike Hammer. Because Mike Hammer was the first guy who just, he just shot the bad guys. <laughs> he just like, you know, I the jury. Mickey put it right in the first title. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm not really, you know, I'm not some right-wing lunatic. In fact, the it's always funny that it's funny that I ended up with my camera because I am actually kind of a squishy liberal, all right? But I I spent hours with Mickey. Days with Mickey. We never and think about this in terms of today. We never talked politics. And he he knew exactly who I was. And he knew exactly, you know, what my beliefs were. And yet he entrusted me with my camera to finish those books. Because on the storytelling level, on the artistic level, we were the, we were the same cat. And that says something I wish we could all learn yeah. from. There's so much hate in this country right now. It's very disturbing. Very, very disturbing. Max Allen Collins, thank you so much. This was a blast. Keith, I've been a, a Serial of Midnight fan for a long time. And so don't say anything bad about me because I'm probably listening. Couldn't you listen to that? For, couldn't we go for another two hours? I've got to have Max Allen Collins back to talk about more stuff. There are so many things that we just kind of touched on because this is an introduction, right? This is, hey, Max Allen Collins did this. And then it's all of these uh, all of these touchstones through his career. But we could, we could hone in on any one of them, right? I want to know more about Elliot Ness and The Untouchables. His provocative statements about David Mamet's script for uh, The Untouchables, really controversial. But nobody knows more about The Untouchables or Elliot Ness, I believe, right now. That's that's alive right now than Max Allen Collins. So that's fascinating to me. I would love to know more about that. There's just so many areas that are ripe for further exploration, and I hope that I do get the opportunity to do that. Here's what you can do. You can support uh, Max Allen Collins in any of his ventures. You can buy the books. You know, Too Many Bullets, brand new, Hard Case Crime. Buy it. Buy that book. Get it digitally. Get it, get it physically. I don't care. Buy the book, read the book. It's a fantastic book, by the way. I'll tell you a little detail. So that character has the, the Nathan Heller character. We've seen him in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. He has aged with Max Allen Collins, which is really cool because we he's in in parts of the book, which takes you know takes place in the, the later 60s. He's reflecting on oh, I knew that person back in the 1930s. Um, it really gives us this unique window 
and, and it's really well done in a way that maybe aging a character is not always well done. Thinking Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, there's a thing that keeps popping up is that there's a woman in the in the novel that has Cher eye makeup. And I was like, I think I know exactly what you look at Cher in the 60s. She had very unique eye makeup. And it's just a little detail that's, uh, that I love. And being such a student of the 60s, being such a fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, this book, you got you to gotta read this book. You also want to check out Encore for Murder. You want to check out the Mickey Spillane doc. Basically, I lined this. If you're watching the video version, I put as many photo cutaways here as I could so that you see exactly what we're talking about. Check out the movies. Check out the, the you know Lee Marvin and Bud Bedeker and Randolph Scott and Audie Murphy. And then go check out Max Allen Collins' stuff. Support creators that we care about. Support creators that support Serial at Midnight. There's one thing right there. Also, you can support Serial at Midnight by, uh, by liking, reviewing, rating, subscribing. Subscribing is so important. I say this consistently, but you know, uh, video-wise, if you watch the YouTube video feed, fewer than half of my YouTube viewers are actually subscribed. Why do I tell you to subscribe? Because the YouTube algorithm shows you what it wants you to see, not what you want to see. So you might be getting something weeks or months or even years after I create it and put it up for you uh, because that's how the algorithm works. So fight that. Fight the machines by subscribing and then by you know seeking out what uh, seeking out what you want to watch, not what's being served to you. And then again, those thumbs ups really do matter. Leaving a comment really matters. But basically, if you subscribe, watch, comment, and give a thumbs up, that's golden. That's that's so helpful. If you want to take it one step further, there are YouTube memberships for five bucks a month. You get exclusive videos. Uh, there's a Patreon. Uh, Patreon page for Serial at Midnight where I'm constantly posting new stuff. There's a thriving community around Patreon there. Whatever you can do to support this, to elevate this, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, and we're going to be back here doing this again really soon. i got more exciting conversations already recorded just waiting to hit. So thank you guys so much. Take care. Until next time, I will catch you later.